Hey everyone in Serial Killer Country, my name is Brittany Ransom. And my name is Rachel Glitz Steelheart. And this is When Killers Get Caught, a podcast devoted to deep dives into the killers we love to learn about. Every week, well, usually Brian and I discuss two true crime stories that resonated with us, then I will lead you down the darker path of learning about who a killer was, how they grew up, how they killed, and most importantly, how they got caught. This week you heard a new name because I've got my other podcast host with me this week. That's the podcast Roommate Arena, and we talk about funny things and the fact that we all live together and have very different opinions about what it means to uh, drink coffee or tea or how much laundry detergent goes in the washer. Brian isn't gone for good, though. He's just in need of a little bit of R&R, as it happens to all of us. And uh, hey, Glitch. Hi. How is everybody out there? (laughs) This is new for you. This is a much longer format than our podcast, which is only like a half an hour. Uh, But it's pretty simple. Glitch is actually going to cover Brian's section today. And he's going to, well, he normally talks about the paranormal, cryptids, and things of that nature. And Glitch, she's going to tell us about that today as a uh, resident expert on all things creepy and from New Jersey. But. Before we get into that part of the episode, this week in true crime. Okay, so yes. here's what happened. <laughs> I so I think I don't know if everyone's aware of, but I'll I'll give a little brief recap. So, uh things are moving with the Emmett Till case down south. So if, for my international uh Listeners, the Emmett Till case is a situation where a 14-year-old boy from Chicago was visiting his family in the South, and here was the original story. Emmett, 14, he's in Drew, Mississippi, which is pretty awful in the 1950s, and he went into a store, and apparently he was bragging to his friends about how up in Chicago he had a white girlfriend, and... According to the woman, he made a lewd remark at her. She was like 19 or 21 at the time. Her name was Carol Bryant. And so Carol told other people about this. And Emmett was the kidnapped, tortured, lynched. It was a major situation. And Emmett's mother actually um, showed his open casket because she wanted America to see what Jim Crow racism and what a lynchings look like. Well, people have always wanted some semblance of justice for this uh, because apparently they knew who did it. And of course, because it was 1955 Mississippi, nobody cared. But recently, people were going through the records of the police department down there and they found a warrant for Miss Bryant's arrest. And she's still alive. Uh, And so what made me kind of look at the news and go, what was what I'm going to read here? Woman who accused Emmett Till of advances says she didn't want him murdered. And uh, newsflash, she lied because it happens a lot Uh, in this country. White women lie about black men doing things to them. Long history, last 80 years of it. But apparently... The Associated Press have discovered an unpublished memoir from this woman and talking about how she didn't know it was going to happen and she felt terrible about it. Regardless, she's 87 now and people still want her to go to jail. And as far as I'm concerned, 
Well, uh, they do it to the Nazis in Germany. When they find an old Nazi, they put him in prison. And I think that's totally acceptable in this situation. When you lie about someone and you get them murdered. But yeah, it's like 99 pages and it's it was titled, I am more than a wolf whistle. <laughs> I understand why she didn't release it. It sounds awful. Yeah, that's like. <sighs> Apparently, she said she attempted to help Emmett once he'd been located by her husband and brother-in-law. And they brought him to her house in the middle of the night for identification. I did not wish Emmett any harm and could not stop harm from coming to him since I didn't know what was planned for him. Except for saying maybe like, that's not the kid. Right. Or like, no, this isn't the person. I don't know who you're talking about. Because like you literally lied to your husband and said some black kid like whistled at me and like told me I was sexy and put his hands on me. Like you, she completely lied like to the most extreme she pretty much said this kid assaulted me and of course her husband was like oh i'm gonna whoop his ass she didn't realize that it was going to be murder but i'm like you definitely knew something was gonna happen yeah and then she wrote i prayed that god would bless emmett's family i'm truly sorry for the pain his family was caused Ugh. yeah boomers people are interested oh, in this no. because it is the I guess biggest like it's it's the most I guess accurate or I guess sensational recollection of what happened because the men who did it definitely never said anything they they went to their graves with that secret yeah that's not surprising but uh yeah but apparently uh the justice department had opened this back up in December but like when I say they just found a warrant for her arrest from the 50s that's within the last four weeks so it's something I've been kind of watching but I was so surprised I was like you didn't burn this lady and the police department has to know they had that apparently it was like deep in the archives modern police didn't know they had it they started going through old records well it wouldn't be deep in the archives in the 50s Oh, no, no, no. They lied. They just said, look at this warrant. Eh, I'm throwing this in the trash. Yeah, police lie a lot. So I'm surprised. Yeah, I'm surprised it even exists right now. But yeah, so uh, I just don't know why if you write a, a, a why you would write a memoir about you admitting to a crime and your participation in the crime. Well, I mean, it's just not smart. (laughs) Stupid murderers and people involved in murders um, are like your whole thing, right? <laughs> right. They keep us in business. Yeah. <laughs> but what's your story for the okay, day? Okay, so probably more positive than. Uh, I don't know if it's positive, but it's definitely funnier. Um, Florida okay. man. I, I figured I'd bring a Florida man because who doesn't love him? Uh, Florida man caught after attempting to outrun police on a lawnmower. Um, apparently 40 year old Dustin, Dusty Mobley, uh, was arrested Saturday. Uh, I think that was last Saturday, uh, after a bizarre police chase. Um, (laughs) they were headed to his house because they suspected him of stealing a $40,000 boat by cutting through the wall, a metal wall of a building, um, and with, with power tools and taking it. And so when they showed up at his house, he jumped on his lawnmower and started trying to ride away. 
Um, now he I, he didn't jump on the boat. Uh, I don't know. It doesn't really say in the article why he didn't jump on the boat, but it does say that they uh, they showed up at nine thirty in the morning. Um, mm. and he jumped on a John Deere ride on lawnmower, which. If you know anything about ride on lawnmowers, I mean, maybe at max they go 10 miles an hour, and I doubt this one went that fast. That's what I was going to ask. Um, I've operated a lot yeah, of that's... Uh, like yard machinery, and I can tell you they don't go fast enough to outru- outrun anybody. Outwalk, maybe, but at- not outrun. So the cops were just like, okay, we're going to tase him. Uh, and they tased him um, <laughs> and arrested him. Um it says in the article it's unclear if the officers gave chase on foot or were in their patrol car which <laughs> like you could chase down a lawnmower in a patrol car um okay so i just a little search it said this the the base models go 68 miles per yeah. hour but apparently people tweak them to race them and can get them 35 to 40 with the fastest clocked at 85 miles per hour why would you do that? There's no protection. Because if you fall off of the John Deere going 80 miles per hour, you're done. Have you never watched King of the Hill? Like, rednecks are crazy. Um, I mean, I come <laughs> from, like, a super white trash family. Uh, thanks. Hi, Mom. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, <laughs> and I, I mean, I've seen them do all <laughs> kinds of crazy things to build a go-kart or something like that. So, I mean, not necessarily specifically my family, but I've seen a lot of people in that kind of circle building weird things. Um, mm-hmm. And pop culture. Uh, but I did want to say... Um, Mobley was charged with a string of offenses including grand theft, grand theft of a vehicle, felony criminal mischief, two counts of resisting an officer, possession of a concealed weapon by a felon, carrying a concealed handcuff key, and possessions of drug paraphernalia. Uh, And according to deputies, Mobley also had a pipe containing what appeared to be methamphetamine residue and a revolver on him when he was taken into custody. So... They show up at your house. So either you just always walk around with meth and a gun, or he grabs those as important things when he ran away. Oh, cops are coming. I can't leave the house without my meth. And for all that, right? meth makes you like hyper energized, right? If you're not, if you're not, like if you, if you don't have ADHD, um, meth makes you hyper energized. Right. So wouldn't it have been faster for him to just sprint away? Also, he wouldn't have to worry about where the tractor goes. Um, Right. Also, was he going across his neighbor's lawns, <laughs> messing up everybody's yards? Let's hope so. Um, but they didn't say anything about property damage, so uh, apparently he didn't mess up anybody's yards. Maybe he cut their lawns for them while he was running. <laughs> right. I like. I never. Wow. You can always trust a Florida man story to be at least a little funny. Oh, they're great. Well, since it's an all-ladies podcast this week, just us goyles, Mm -hmm. I thought I'd bring up one of the women serial killers in the U.S. And actually, she is the first woman to be executed in Florida in the modern era. Inadvertently, I brought up a Florida woman this week. (laughs) I didn't know you were going to do a Florida man. Technically, you did Uh, yours first. I know you're a serial killer. True, true. Um, Now, technically... Now, you're a serial killer fan yourself, Glitch, so you probably know, just like our listeners, most women aren't uh, killing for funsies. 
Oh, yeah. It's generally comfort. They're comfort killers. So for folks listening, that's someone who's committing a murder to make their life easier. Be that financially or to improve the quality of your life. And today's killer is no different. And her name was Judy Buenoano. But that was one of her many names. Uh, Judy was ultimately convicted of killing her husband, her son, and her boyfriend. But she's also suspected of several other murders. And we'll discuss them all today. And just like every week, we start with the beginning. So Judy Buenoano was born Judius Ann Lou Welty. On April 4th, 1943, in Quanah, Texas, to, these are quite possibly some of the most country names, Zaya Jesse Otto Welty and Judius Mary Lou Northam Welty. Uh, her parents were 34 and 30. Um, for the folks who don't know Texas that well, Quanah is in Hardham County, and that's just below the panhandle south of the Oklahoma border. So this isn't the normal area we think of when we think of Texas. Uh, Judy's father was a traveling farmhand and her mother was a stay-at-home mom. And Judy's life kind of starts out pretty rocky. When she's two years old, her mom's diagnosed with tuberculosis. uh, And by the time Judy is four, her mom is dead. Uh, Even sadder, Judy's youngest sibling, Robert, was a newborn at the time. And you think normally in this situation, parents would do something, right? Yeah, um... Yeah. Zaya just goes, I don't know how to take care of four kids and I don't want to. So he gives the older two boys up for adoption, just hands them off right away and then asks his mother to take care of Judy and baby Robert. I guess because they're young, young, you know, people love having tiny babies and not older kids who you have to deal with. Yeah. The responsibilities of tweens. Ugh. So the grandmother, she's an older woman, right? She can't take care of them for too long. So Judy and Robert bounce around from family member to family member for the next eight years. Occasionally doing minor stints in foster care, too. Uh, Judy would later tell investigators that she was molested and sexually assaulted in many of those homes. Very common. Yeah, especially at that time. um, I mean, I don't think it's become much less uncommon, unfortunately, or I feel like it's still just as awful in foster care and in group homes and things. So, and I really do feel for young Judy because I remember what it was like being allowed to like live with my bio parents and then being sent to my grandma and that went back and forth and then getting adopted by uh, an aunt and an uncle. You, you grow up not feeling secure and you grow up seeking any kind of security and sometimes in the worst ways. Oh, I, I mean, I totally get that. I ran away when I was 17. So they, So the big shift for Judy comes when she turned 12 in 1955. Judy's father had been moving around and shacking up with lots of different women. Marion, divorcing him. But Zaya's mother calls him and it's just like, listen, the kids deserve better than this. I'm going to put them in an orphanage. And I don't know if grandma picked that was the right thing to say. I'm just going to get put them in an orphanage. They can get adopted. Um, but it did make Zaya act because he's like, whatever, I'll bring him in with my next, uh, with my current wife. And, uh, Judy said that was his eighth wife, but I could not find confirmation of that. Oh, now Zaya. That's a lot of wives. I had, I have one ex-wife and I'm good. (laughs) Yeah. Most people don't want to get divorced multiple times. Maybe it was different back then. 
I mean, there's people in my family that huh. have been married three or four times, so. Yeah, I'm not trying to do that in my yeah. life. <laughs> One's good. But, well, yeah. Listen, I always said one time, if it doesn't work out, then ah. Yep. I'm just going to live with my friends and with our pets. and We're already landing there and you didn't even <laughs> get married once yet, so. Nope. I'm already slowly creating a commune of my best friends. Are you friends just living vicariously with? through me? Because you have too many girlfriends? No, because I, I have two. <laughs> and uh, because I've already been divorced. Oh, well, I mean, that's sad. <laughs> I mean, in general, it's sad. But Zaya and his wife are living in Roswell, New Mexico. Mm-hmm. And they weren't really all that jazzed about bringing more mouths to feed because uh, Zaya had not only had a new wife, but he had stepchildren he was taking care of, too. So Judy and Robert are treated like the Cinderella's of the family. They had to clean up the rest of the wealthy household, beaten when things weren't clean enough. Uh, Judy would later tell police that she and Robert were burned with cigarettes if there was a speck of grease left on any of the dishes. If the stove wasn't perfect, um, Judy would miss a meal and she'd have to sit at the table while the rest of the family ate. Wow. And that goes on for four more years. Well, two, exactly. So when Judy was 14, they're having already a big issue. Teenage things happening. But there was a two-week period where she missed about 17 meals. Mm. And her stepmother was berating her brother Robert and hit him. And Judy snapped. She picked up a hot pan of grease and she flung it across the room. The grease burned her stepbrothers. And then she got into an all-out fist fight with her stepmom. When the police came, she was screaming, kicking, throwing things at both her father and stepmother. Um, she described the event herself and said she darn near killed them. But honestly, I think whatever they got that day, they kind of deserved. So they arrest Judy and detain her in a women's prison. Fully with adults, she stayed there for 60 days until her court date. And of course, she tells the courts about all the abuse. And so she gets in front of the judge and he's just like, I understand families have disagreements. You know, things happen. The real situation is, do you want to go back and move back in with those people? And Judy's like, no. So the judge is like, well, the only other option is that you go to a facility. And she's perfectly okay with that. She ends up going to a juvenile detention facility by choice called Foothills High School, uh, a girls reform school. And she stayed there and graduated at 16. Uh Foothills was in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and that graduation was May of 1955. As far as her relationship with Robert, Judy wanted nothing to do with him. And she said later on, I wouldn't spit down his throat if his guts were on fire. Sounds about right. So, yeah, Uh, she's ready to completely be removed from the wealthy family. Teenage Judy really sounds a lot like teenage me. I didn't mean for that to happen when I chose this. (laughs) I specifically tried to choose someone that didn't experience child abuse. And then it's, it's, it's everyone. It's all of them. It's it's, why are so many people from like the past 50 years? I think it's especially prevalent among women uh, who are serial killers of that time. Although as a disclaimer, I never murdered anybody that they can prove. 
No. <laughs> yeah, no, you never I wouldn't be a friend with a murderer. No, I'm not a murderer. But so the next step, <laughs> what would you do if you were in Judy's position? You're 16 years old, you're not talking to your family anymore. Um I don't know, work at a bar. She changes her name. Okay. To Anna Schultz. And she tries to make a new life for herself. Way better name. She dates. She works. She works odd jobs. And then she found out she was pregnant in 1960. Um, She decides the baby probably will need a slightly more solid life. So she gets a job at the Eastern New Mexico Medical Center as a nurse's aide. And she gives birth to her son, Michael Arthur Schultz, on March 30th, 1961 in Roswell, New Mexico. Michael's father was never listed on the birth certificate. And now she has an illegitimate child. She's living in the same city as her family. She still doesn't reach out for any help from them, which just lets you know how much she didn't like these people. I mean, I get it. That she's like, she could use a place, you know what I mean? To some extra support with a kid, but she's not doing it. Uh, Folks who knew Judy said that she did date a guy from the local Air Force base, and there was a rumor that he was the father, but she never named names. Now, she did have a desire to marry a man in the military, though, and so she ends up dating James Goodyear. He treated her well, asked her to marry him within a couple of months of their meeting. They got married on January 21st, 1962, and Anna Schultz becomes Anna Goodyear. James adopts Michael as his own, and he becomes Michael Goodyear. The two begin their relationship. Um, Judy wasn't an especially emotional woman, which we could definitely relate to the fact that she experienced all that abuse when she was young. But she did all of the things that wives of the 60s are supposed to do. She cooked, she cleaned, and January 1st, 1966, she gave birth to James E. Goodyear, Jr., uh, James Sr. was assigned to the Strategic Air Command Base at McCoy Air Force Base, and the entire family moved to Orlando, Florida for this new placement. Uh, Kimberly Goodyear was born just as if they moved in 1967. And, of course, 1967, what's happening in the U.S.? Uh, it was Vietnam, yeah. Well, Vietnam was going on that yep. whole time, though. I mean, sort of, but we weren't yep. as involved. But 67, yeah, Vietnam. Vietnam is in for- full swing. Oh, yeah. And his superiors are like, listen, James, we might have to bring in. You might get deployed. So James Sr. and Judy open up a daycare in Orlando, Florida called the Conway Acres Child Care Center. And I guess the idea behind this was that it would be a good way for the family to make money that wasn't dependent on military. And Judy could have reliable income if he got deployed. The daycare is a major success. And James Sr. doesn't get sent to Vietnam until 1970. So they were worried for no reason? Yeah. He, he's only there for a year, and he comes back home to his happy family in June of 1971. And that's when things get weird. Almost as soon as James gets back, he starts getting sick. Vomiting a lot. Diarrhea. Agent Orange. He waves it off at first. Right. That's You know, he, he, he kind of waves it off as... The effects of being over there, but it gets worse. The two weeks before his death, he has abnormal liver testing. Um, the, so the doctors can tell something's wrong with his liver, but none of the normal tests are giving them concrete answers. He complains that his fingers and toes are tingling, vomiting, cramping consistently while in the hospital. And James Goodyear Sr. dies at the U.S. Naval Hospital on September 13th, 1971. 
uh, the autopsy shows the same thing. They checked with the Air Force, and while in Vietnam, he reported he was taking his anti-malaria meds as he was supposed to, and that when he got back from Vietnam, he reported that he got tired really quickly, and he had some kind of abdominal distension and a lack of appetite. Uh, the final two weeks at the hospital, he had a fever of a 101, chills. They diagnosed, like, a, what they wrote on the death certificate was excessive, but septicemia bronchopneumonia, renal failure, <laughs> ulceration of the ileocecal valve, and ascending colon, cause unknown, and cardiorespiratory arrest, turnal. So all that leading up to his heart stop. Do you know what any of that is? I had to look up a lot of it personally. Uh, kidney failure, uh, an issue, a lot of gastrointestinal issues, especially the ileocecal valve. Um, that's uh, sort of like a sphincter. Um, so you actually have multiple sphincters. You're welcome, guys. Nursing training. Um, who knew? Never knew yeah, that. So he he had a lot of stuff going on in the guts, and I'm wondering if she poisoned him. Oh, you're right on target, glitch. See, most people who have listened to this podcast would know that uh, there are some uh telltale symptoms of arsenic poisoning. And it, and that's the one. At least we'll find out that a little bit later. But that's it's pretty solidly believed that uh, he was poisoned with arsenic. It obviously wasn't enough to alert him, but it must have been done over like a three to four month period. That by the time he got to the hospital, there was nothing they could do about it. Yeah, she, it sounds like she maybe slowly ramped it up, where she started with a small dose mm -hmm. and just tried to figure out exactly how much it would take. Yeah, because from what I understand, it it's very it's a bitter. It's not like some of the other poisons that are completely tasteless. Well, arsenic has a bad bad taste can, from the. I jump. can tell you, um, <laughs> kind of refers back to our episode of Roommate Arena, episode one. Um, okay, the guys in Vietnam, because my father was in Vietnam, and he told me that their like food kits always came with coffee and cigarettes. Uh, and so a lot of guys that were in Vietnam continued to drink coffee. Now, um, if Goodyear had continued to drink coffee, black, like they did in Vietnam, uh, because it becomes mm -hmm. a habit and, and, and uh, caffeine is addictive. Um, right. He could have not noticed because if arsenic is bitter, so is black coffee. And maybe he was just like, this coffee sucks, right. but I'm going to drink it because my wife made it. <laughs> right. Right. But um, essentially... The doctors had no reason to assume that this was anything other than a potentially Vietnam-related illness, so they didn't do anything further. Judy submits three life insurance policies on James Sr. on September 20th, collecting $28,000 as his widow and $64,000 in Veterans Administration benefits, and we'll bring that to 2022 money, which is about $693,000 today. I, in my opinion, what I'm thinking here is he left. Judy was like, oh, I could do this by myself. And then rather than divorce him, just got rid of him. I mean, it sounds like a plan. A veterans benefits can be really good. Um, obviously, your spouse has to either be 100% disabled or die. But um, also tax brackets for widows are so much better than everybody else because you get to file as if you're both filing but there's only one of you and if she only has a housewife oh. salary yeah well, that makes sense why she did the next thing which was she immediately closed down the daycare 
so only one income, and moves her family to Pensacola, Florida in 1972, but not before her home with James mysteriously burns down, and she collects $90,000 from her homeowner's insurance, too. What's that in 2022 money? Oh, Lord. A lot. It's like another almost, it's it's almost like another, uh, let's see, yeah, it's almost another $600,000 in our time. So she collects almost $1.5 here, and uh, she buys a really nice house in Pensacola and sets up something solid for her and her kids. She changes her name from Anna back to Judius. So she's going by Judy Goodyear again. That happens sometime in 1972. And then Judy meets a new man, Bobby Joe Morris. And the two hook up pretty quickly. Uh, he start, he moves in with her after like six months. Uh, that's 1973. Judy's 29. Bobby's 31. Normal age range. Mm-hmm. He was from Brewtown, Alabama. And he worked with his childhood friend, John Rowell. And they had a business crew doing the pipelines for swimming pool construction, which I didn't realize was a lucrative business, but it makes sense because Florida pools. Mm-hmm. But eventually his work calls for him to move to Colorado. And so Bobby just kind of says to Judy, stay here. I'll come back after a couple months after doing a whole bunch of pools, just make a lot of money and come back to Florida. He leaves in January, 1977 and surprise, surprise July of 1977, the house in Pensacola burns down. Oh no. She just has such bad luck with fire. It's definitely not such arson. bad luck. Bobby, of course, is like, well, I guess come on over to Trinidad, Colorado. Now, uh, for our listeners abroad, I'm not sure if your countries have this, but many states in the U.S., if you live with somebody long enough, the country would recognize you as a married couple. It really began in the 1800s um, and links back to a Supreme Court case called Meister versus Moore, um, essentially because in the early 1900s, a lot of states didn't like places like small towns didn't have a lot of priests and those are really the only people who were marrying you back then and so they were just like yeah whatever you've lived together for six years you're married now file your taxes Mm -hmm. and the states didn't really change it until the modern era like now so i bring this up because when judy moves to trinidad in 1977 she changes her name to judy morris and the two are like we're married. And in most states, there's usually a year amount. But in Colorado, you just have to decide we're married now. And now you're married in the eyes of the law. You don't need a license. You don't need documentation. Now, in modern days, even in Colorado, you have to have some kind of a witness who knows that you've been together. So it's not like cheating the government. Uh, Colorado is one of the laxest states in regards to this. But in Pennsylvania, where we live, there's no common law marriage. They got rid of that in 2005 because they're like, listen, with the event of you being able to get your license ship to marry people on the Internet, there's no more hardship. Go get married like normal people. <laughs> like, So that's as far as Pennsylvania is concerned. But thankfully, Judy's in Colorado and she becomes Judy Moore and all of the kids move in and their names change, too. And since, well, now they're married in the eyes of the law, Judy takes out an insurance policy on Bobby. What if he gets hurt? Oh, no. You know, laying all those pipes. And uh, (laughs) she gets a job. I knew you were going to laugh. I didn't say nothing. (laughs) No comment. (laughs) Um, And she gets a job working at the San Rafael Hospital in Trinidad. Uh, Interestingly enough, she's listed as a licensed nurse. 
And there are absolutely no records whatsoever that Judy ever went to college. So it would appear that every time she's changing her name, she's also adding credentials. Well, yeah, and she would have just enough experience in the medical field having done CNA work. To be able to fake it. And so, honestly, though, lying about being a nurse is the least of her worries because we know the deal. Bobby gets admitted to San Rafael Hospital on January 4th, 1978. Oh, no, his guts don't he's... feel so good. Nope. And he's a stocky guy, about six foot three, 220 pounds, and he is in shock when he is admitted to the hospital. He had been in perfect health before, but at about 5 p.m. the day he was admitted, he started uncontrollably vomiting, abdominal pain, diarrhea that was an eggshell color. Uh, I had to uh-huh. Google what amylase levels were, but they were real high. <laughs> and they couldn't figure out why he was in shock so they treated him uh, with IV fluids to help with dehydration and also gave him dopamine I'm like they do that? yeah uh, which was to bring his blood pressure up mm-hmm. Orig- originally he's in the ICU and then when they get better he moves him Judy tells the hospital attending doctor that Bobby has been drinking two cases of beer every day for the past several years And since she was his wife and a nurse, they trusted her to tell the truth. So the doctors are assuming he's going through alcohol withdrawal, which is real. It's the reason why Amy Winehouse died. Um, So they treat him with a drug called Librium for every four hours and also Aquamephitin and Thiamine for the liver problems. And by January 7th, he's worse. He's uh, agitated, experiencing delirium. He can't tolerate any medication by mouth. He's becomes diabetic and has to get IV insulin treatments. Oh, my God. January 9th, he, go, he goes into congestive heart failure with severe respiratory distress. They have to give him oxygen. He comes out of the delirium slightly, and, and he's, like, hallucinating, but also occasionally capable of talking and being reasonable his kidney stats approved and they're like maybe he has pancreatitis january 14th he's lucid january 16th he seems to be recovering and they discharge him to judy's care on the 21st because at this point he can walk around he immediately gets worse and two days later judy takes him back to the er saying he passed out at the dinner table she told the docs that the vomiting came back and that he was too tired to even get out of bed when he was admitted, they weren't even getting a blood pressure reading on him while he was lying down. Oh. Which is very How bad is for he anyone not listening. Dead? He's almost there and his heart rate is going super fast. The evening of the 24th, he begins to crash. They suspect some kind of infection. They give him broad spectrum antibiotics. On the 25th, he seems to level out. And then on the 26th, he suddenly becomes like very angry and hostile and they have to restrain him. They test him for lupus on the 27th, but they don't get the answer back in time because on 7.20 a.m., January 28th, his heart stops and all signs of life and brain death are called at 7.55 a.m. Bobby's autopsy shows that he's septic. Septic shock, metabolic acidosis, possible. Okay, I know this word. Hepatic encephalopathy. It's a liver problem. Hypothetical. Hypotension and chronic pancreatitis. Low blood pressure. Um, they thought his hypertension pancreas. was lactic. Sorry. Yeah. Um, that's no, thank you. Because <laughs> I, I had to Google things and make notes. Um, you can just tell me. <laughs> Some uh, of it. I mean, I'm not uh, a doctor. They thought, 
But yeah, they thought that the hypotension with the lactic acidosis and arrhythmia resulted in cardiac arrest. Ugh. And definitely didn't check for arsenic poisoning. Nope. Within several days, Judy submits three more claims for life insurance and she gets $30,000. And May 3rd, 1978, she changes her name now to Judy Buenolano, which was her own creation of a Spanish name. I don't know why she went with Spanish. She told people her whole life that she was Apache and white. That's a lie, but we'll learn, we'll get into that later. Uh, it was supposed to be Goodyear in Spanish. Mm. And I'm like, that's not how it would work in real Spanish. Whatever, Judy. Uh, then June of 1978, she purchases this house in Gulf Freeze, Florida in Pensacola. And well, the next part is probably the worst thing. Oh, no. Uh, so... Her son, Michael, uh, her illegitimate son, he joins the military at 18. Um, He had admired James Goodyear Sr. and also Bobby Morris, who were both in the military. And so he followed kind of the only dad's new footsteps in June of 1979. He did well in basic training, and he ended up kind of finding his path when he took a class on water purification from October 1st to the 26th. And that became his military occupation specialty. Now, during his lab for the course, he ended up studying sodium arsenite, Mm. which was in the lab. And so what I think happened here is that Michael realized what happened to his father and stepfather, Mm. because that's something that they would have learned in his class. Yeah. Um, The military did report there was a small lab accident. He ended up getting exposed to chlorine fumes on October 16th because... That's what happens when you put an 18-year-old in a lab with caustic chemicals. Yeah. And so he was in the Fort Leonard Wood Hospital in Missouri with a skin and upper airway inflammation. But ultimately, he was fine. Um, he gets done with his class, and he has like a week or so before he has to go to Fort Benning, Georgia, where he's going to be placed. And so he visits his mom in Fort Breeze, which is when he begins showing symptoms of parenthesis which is the pins and needles in your extremities. He arrives at Fort Benning on November 6th. By November 13th, checks himself into the hospital on base with nausea and vomiting. Tells them he's going, it's been going on for the past two weeks. Um, His muscles get weak and he drops from 167 pounds to 149. By December, the doctors note that his white blood cells just are not working the way they're supposed to. They test his lead levels, which are elevated, and then they test him for arsenic levels, but those are low. Um, they give him chelation therapy January 9th, 1980, and that goes on through the 17th. He drops another 20-some pounds, down to 123. That's real bad. He is sick, sick. Especially since both their fathers were pretty tall, right? So, like, both the dads, so, like, his he should be fairly tall, Yeah. Well, that wasn't his biological father, but Judy was also a pretty stocky lady herself. He wasn't a small kid. Uh, I, I would assume he, and then he had just gone through basic training where usually people leave a little more muscular than they yeah, started. Yeah, like usually 167 would be a healthy, fit young man, not not somebody that's very mm-hmm. flabby, not after basic training, especially since it was way more right. brutal back then than it is now. That's what my dad told me. That's what my dad told me. Well, <laughs> uh, was your dad a Marine uh, too? My dad was also a Marine, yes. Hey. Uh, now, 
They sent Michael to the neurology service at Walter Reed Army Medical Center, and they diagnosed him with general muscle wasting and atrophy. And I'm just like, is that a real diagnosis or is that just your muscles are disappearing? We don't know why. Um, it can be. I mean, especially you got to remember it was, you know, the 80s, it was the early 80s. So, true. Um, you know, true. Uh, me- medical well, science gets a lot better very quickly from like 1995 <laughs> to 2010. <laughs> well, they test his hair there and his arsenic levels are seven times the normal level. And they calculate that this exposure would have been in mid-October. And they're saying, oh, that's when he was in class. And so they contact his mom. And Judy tells this story about that, how Michael has had pica his entire life and that he's been eating any and everything that he could get his hands on since he was a little boy. And so the army assumes that at some point in the lab, he ingested arsenic. What? I just, I don't believe so. I think he went back and he was just like, you know, I've been learning about some stuff, mom. And it seems like my dad had the same symptoms as what we're learning about. And I think she hit him with a big dose. Whatever she gave him with was almost immediate. It could even have been a conversation and this all speculation, but it could have been a conversation of like, True. I've been learning a lot about arsenic and did dad have enemies? Because it seems like he might've gotten poisoned. Right. And the next thing you know, he's sick. Right. Well, at this point they know how to help him because they know it's arsenic poisoning, but the damage is done. He becomes reliant on a wheelchair. He's super depressed. He doesn't think he's ever going to walk again. He has arm and leg braces he goes through some pretty intense physical therapy, but he is able to somewhat walk, but he can't be active duty in the army. And so they send him to the VA spinal cord rehabilitation center, which is closer to his mom and uh, his mom's house in Florida for more therapy. And things are quiet in the Buenoano bueno household. And on May 13th, 1980, Michael drowns while out canoeing with his mother and brother. Mm. Now, according to Judy, the canoe overturned at 3.30 p.m. on the East River near Milton, Florida, and because of her son's leg braces and a prosthetic on his right arm, he was weighed down. Also, he was pretty incapable of moving his legs from the knee down without the braces, so it would have been highly unlikely he would have been able to swim in the water uh, without the braces. Why would he Um, even be in a boat? That is a big question. Um, Judy said that he really wanted to fish. And so she went out with him. Uh, James could not remember because when the boat flipped, he was hit in the back of the head. And so he's sinking like a rock. And Judy says that she has to pick a child to save. You know, Sophie's choice. And so she chooses James. And she kind of, she says she drags James to the shore. At that point, Michael's long gone. It was apparently a quarter mile swim back to shore. Another boater picks them up. And about five hours later, they recover uh, Michael's body, the Santa Rosa search and rescue divers. Uh, they, no one's drinking or doing any drugs. His death is ruled entirely an accident. Ugh. After Michael's death, Judy again collects military money to the tune of $20,000. And she opens a beauty salon and starts her life up again. <sighs> Not long 
after, because I mean, this happens in 1980, Judy meets John Gentry on February of 1981. They met this place called the Merry-Go-Round, which was a lounge in Florida. That is a just a strange place because it had bands and like a restaurant area. And at the center of the place was female mud wrestling. Sounds rad. It just sounds like a lot going on in one place. I mean. But Judy, John said that Judy's decked out. Low cut black dress, stilettos, fancy jewelry. And she looks totally out of place. But he looks and she's staring at him. And uh, they exchange numbers and have lunch the following day. He pays her for lunch. He pays for the lunch. And she goes, oh, I guess I owe you. And he says, you owe me 10,000 jelly beans. And they just kind of laugh and, you know, both go back to work. And that night when he gets back to his apartment, there's a three foot tall container of jelly beans sitting at his door. Exactly 10,000 of them. And for some reason, that was endearing to John. I can see that. If I told a girl that, mm-hmm. you know, I owed, they owed me 10,000 jelly beans and they brought me 10,000 jelly beans, I would be enamored. Yeah. He was. They move in pretty quickly. John called it a whirlwind romance, and he said that everything was perfect for the first year and a half. They went on cruises, trips to New York, and he started with ate a fancy restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> Six days a week. Just around Christmas of 1981, he got sick, and he said Judy switched off like a light. They stopped going on trips. They were barely talking. Fact is, he thought they were going to break up, honestly. Like, he thought he was just buying his time before she was like, get the hell out of my house. And that brings us to June 25th, 1983. Now, John remembers this day um, very well. And he said he remembered sitting in Judy's kitchen. It was a warm Saturday morning. He told her he was going to get some new speakers for his car. He was going out to the flea market and he wanted James, now 17, to put them in for him because James was kind of a tech kid. Uh, John told Judy he'd be back by noon because he was supposed to go to the Dripwood restaurant at 730. There was going to be a party for one of Judy's employees and he was going to show up there and kind of welcome everyone while she finished her day shift at the salon. At about 845, he heads across the Pensacola Bay Bridge in his Ford Futura. I don't even know what that car looks like. Um, I've heard of it. I can't picture it at the moment. I mean, I see the pictures of what happened to the car and you'll find out about that very soon. Um, he says, good day, has the sunroof open, playing Channy Rogers. He stops by the flea market, gets his speakers, comes home to find 14-year-old Kimberly on the couch making out with her boyfriend. Uh, he didn't really approve, but it wasn't his kid, so he kept his mouth shut. He asked James to put the speakers in, and then Judy pulls up in her shiny white Corvette. Oof. He hadn't expected to see her until the party, and he's just like, what are you doing here? And she's like, I went to the doctor. I'm pregnant. And they're both really happy. And they're like, awesome. Uh, So while James goes and works on his car, they go in her Corvette to celebrate a bit. They have lunch. They go to the movies. They're talking about awesome stuff. We're going to get married soon. Judy's talking about how they can get married on a cruise ship. And in John's mind, he's like, this is how she was in the beginning. She's back to how she was. She's back to loving me again. And... um. As they're about to leave, she drops him off at the house and she's like, hey, give this bag to James. It's a bag of weed. And apparently that happened pretty common. But again, James was, uh, you know, John was like, eh, not my kid. So I'm not going to talk to her about how maybe she shouldn't be buying drugs for her 17 year old son. 
Either way, though, he gets ready, showers, gets and goes uh, at six o'clock, stops by his mom's house to see if she wants to come free dinner. But his mom's like, I don't feel good. Leave me alone. So he heads over to the place at seven, does all the things for the guests. Judy shows up at 915 with a diamond necklace for the employee who's being honored ever. Just the flamboyant business owner. Damn. And then it's afterward. And she kisses John and they go home and they're separate. They get ready to go home in their separate cars. And John told the police that the only thing that stood out from him that night was that Judy hadn't wanted him to park next to the restaurant. And in fact, she'd been emphatic about the fact that he needed to park at this vacant lot about two blocks away. And that's the last thing that John remembers, because the next thing he remembered was waking up in an ambulance coming in and out of consciousness. And he says he remembers asking the doctor if it was serious. And when the doctor said yes, he told him, well, I guess I'll see you when I wake up and passed out. (laughs) Uh, John thought that maybe his battery had exploded in his car. He didn't realize that his entire car had blown up until he woke up in the ICU and the cops and his mother and brother were there, which we bring in. Ted Chamberlain, the head detective on this case, and his partner, Rick Geronimo Steele. What a name. What a weird middle name. What a name, right? I'm like, this guy sounds like a noir detective. I mean, Rick Steele. I guess I can't really talk too much smack since my name is Rachel Glitch Steelheart, but like, still. (laughs) At least my name I made up. (laughs) Well, so... Before John is conscious and able to talk to them at the hospital, Ted gets the call at like one in the morning because I guess they left the restaurant around midnight. So this had just happened. He spends pretty much the next four hours on the crime scene. And then he wakes up a couple hours later and goes to the Pensacola. What a weird name, but they call it the felony garage, which is where all the cars that get taken by the cops are. The impound Um, lot. They said that, yeah, at the impound lot, but they called it the Pensacola Felony Garage. At least back then they did. The ATF is already there. And uh, Special Agent Bob Cousin is their uh, representative from the ATF. They say that pretty much the sunroof being open might have possibly saved his life. Uh, the bomb exploded through the back seat, blew out the front and rear windows, lifting the roof up like a tent. There were two sticks of dynamite that were put in the trunk. And they were hidden under the back seat and rigged to the back taillights. Normally, car bombs are hooked to the ignition, but this was so the bomb wouldn't go off until nightfall. Um. Bob, Bob believed that John was leaning forward to turn the ignition, and that stopped him from getting the worst of the blast. But he was jacked up. I mean, he had broken bones all over, shrapnel everywhere, glass everywhere. I mean, he was rough, but he was alive. The news hears there's a bombing in this area and they run that this is a mafia hit. But the ATF is like, let them write what they're going to write. The only thing they have from this bomb are these two pieces of multi-strand wire that are orange and white. Fragments from the blasting cap and electrician's tape that they're going to try and get prints off of. Hardly the typical assassination attempt from the mob. Uh, They talk to John's brother, Albert, and... He's like, well, he has a bad business dealing with this lady in Mobile, Alabama. And Judy's like, I have no idea who would want to hurt him. Of course. 
she's like, we only we were at that restaurant because it was a going away a party for one of our employ one of my employees. She told the cop she was pregnant that they had spent the day together in that car, which is a lie because they were in her car. Mm-hmm. But that's beside the point. She's a big liar, but she's very distraught. Puts on a huge show for the cops. John, of course, has no idea who wants him dead. A brief look at his personal effects shows a guy who likes baseball because he had four tickets in his pocket. He's a smoker. They find weed on him. It's not even his weed, but they're just like, yeah, who cares? Everybody likes to get a little high every now and then. All the 80s. It's not not really given drug kingpin. Yeah. What has the cops suspicious, though, is that Judy parked her Corvette in front of the restaurant and John's in this empty lot two blocks away. And it just seems too convenient that his car only hurt him. It was nowhere near any party guests, restaurants, or anybody walking by. And they found shrapnel up to 200 yards away from the car. It was the perfect spot for this bomb to happen and only hurt one person. Like I said, John's hurt. There's shrapnel in his stomach. He has to have multiple surgeries on his head and body over the course of the first 24 hours. Judy isn't with him because she's getting interviewed with the other witnesses. She was glad to tell Ted and Rick about her job and how she had loaned John money with his business and he paid her back and how she ran a beauty salon and made $500,000 a year. Very arrogant and ultra confident. But she made sure to tell the police that they had been receiving threatening calls from that woman in Mobile, Alabama, Jackie Morgan. And it wasn't a lie, but Jackie had been filing lawsuits against John. That's not really what you do when you're about to, like, murder somebody. Yeah. Ted and Rick go back to the Pensacola police and the essentially the chief's like, I don't care what else you do. He's like, you need to work the hell out of this case. Leave no stone unturned. So they go back to John on the 27th and they ask about Jackie. And he's like, I mean, I don't think she would kill me. She's just mad about a business deal. And so Ted is like, who would benefit from your death then? And that's when the light kind of flickers for John. And he's just like, oh, Judy and I took out $500,000 insurance policies on each other. Like I'm her uh, beneficiary and she's my beneficiary. And they're like, that's not the normal amount for regular people it's normally like five fifty thousand to a hundred k and so john tells them that they did it because they both have successful businesses and the idea is that the money would also help to cover either the transition of the business or just deal with the loss of profits when the owner dies and that policy had been in effect since november Hmm. and it's june now so june 30th ted goes to the offices of john broxton and associates with a subpoena to look at those insurance policies, which he learned that there were two. So he was honest. Judy had been paying them $200 a month. And she had actually talked to the insurance agents about increasing the policy to a million dollars a piece eventually. That's They spend the next couple of... It's a lot of money. Yeah, especially in the 80s. Like, I mean, a million dollars now isn't nearly what it was then. Yeah. I mean, it's enough to... I don't know if it's enough to kill a person, but it's enough to get by. Mm. (laughs) No comment. (laughs) (laughs) They spent the next few weeks detailing just how much money had given, she'd given to John, which is about $24,000. And that John had $209,000 in pending contracts with his work. He owned a wallpaper company. 
And he was projected to make $400,000 that year. So she would have gotten all of the money from his business and the money from the policy. So now it's getting even more interesting. This is almost a million bucks that she serves to make off of this man dying. July 1st, Ted calls Judy and it's like, listen, we're trying to eliminate people. Can you come down and take a polygraph test? And Judy looks at like she goes, uh, yeah, sure. 20 minutes later, Ted gets a call from her attorney and says she won't be taking any polygraph tests and hangs up on him. So on July 2nd, they start watching her. Literally, they they tailor. They watch her go from the salon to the hospital. She, they watch her talk to John at the hospital for a bit. As they go over the information you get from the insurance agency. Now, here's the thing. While you can lie to your spouse, you cannot lie when you're filing a life insurance policy. They want to know every single thing about you. And Judy had been quite honest with the lawyers. So... When the police got the subpoena, they're looking at this giant list of her and her name changes and places she's lived. Dead husbands. So they're going to start working. Right. Well, they find that out as they go to each. They they start connecting each pace. But, well, while Judy's in the hospital, she talks to John. And she's like, listen, I think we should take you back home. You know, I can nurse you back to health. You know, I used to be a nurse. I have a degree. I'm going to have a nursing degree. And... John's just like, honestly, I already made plans to go stay at my mom's house. And the nurses will later tell Ted that Judy freaks out, screams at him, slams the door. And that's another moment for John where he's like, the only other time Judy behaved like this was in November of the previous year when she had him and the rest of the family taking vitamins And right after John started taking those vitamins, he was in the hospital in December. After getting out of the hospital, he refused to take any more. And she screamed at him then, too. This was the second attempt on his life. And John was starting to realize it. Honestly, it's weird. I kind of like John. Listen, John's smart. Like, he's the only one who is just like, he's like. Well, it's also weird, too. I, I realized that, well, they cover a lot of these older cases that people were just so willing to just move in with people, give them all the access to their finances very quickly. What's that? You want and all I, my money? Just, <laughs> oh, you can have yeah, it. Yeah, <laughs> I'm like, maybe I was just, I'm just too suspicious of a person. I've never actually lived with anyone I've dated because I feel like. Once you combine, and that makes it really hard when things break up. Well, that's, and now you got to figure out where to live in all this That's my jazz. secret. I have no money. Oh. <laughs> well, at least no one will ever murder you. Oh, that's not true. At least not for your money. Nope. Not for the money. <laughs> <laughs> well, Judy leaves the hospital that night, 710, but she had spotted the cops, and so she tries to lose her tail. Eventually, she goes home for a little bit, hops in her son's truck, and drives off. She leads the cop on, cops on a bit of a chase. And then when they turn a corner, she's turned facing them. Like in the truck, headlights on. Just kind of like, I knew you were there, assholes. <laughs> so that's kind of burned as far as the police were going. But July 3rd, Ted and Rick go to see John again. And John's like, hey, something weird happened yesterday. And he said it reminded him about the thing with the vitamins. 
And uh, Ted's immediately like, oh, really? Mystery pills? Did you did you happen to save any of those pills? And he's like, matter of fact, I did. They're in my briefcase at my job. I I left them in there because I was going to go get them tested, but I just forgot about it. So, of course, they leave the hospital and immediately go to his job with the signed permission saying that he's allowed to go through his suitcase and grab these pills. Mm-hmm. Those pills go to get analyzed, but the investigation gets sidetracked because they're interviewing virtually everyone Judy knows and every person they talk to, they are getting these crazy stories. She told people that she had degrees in pharmacology, psychology. She told another friend that Mario Gambino of the Gambino family was a close personal friend. And so they had to stop the investigation and let the ATF look into the fact that she said that she was a part of a mob family. Oh my God. Now, while that's going on, the capsules come back from the Florida Department of Law Enforcement. And the lab definitely is like, these definitely aren't vitamin C. But they also aren't anything that we know. And so that's weird because I'm assuming originally that these are arsenic. Yeah. But they're not. So they get sent to D.C. and run through the CDC poison list. And that comes back as paraformaldehyde, a class C poison. Now, for people who don't know, I had to Google it myself. Paraformaldehyde is a disinfectant and also a waterproofing agent. It has no medicinal uses. Ingesting this will most definitely kill you, but it won't well, show up in, as an autopsy, nor is it a typical foreign substance from, that they check for. Formaldehyde is typically used on dead bodies. Exactly. And I think that's literally why. water sealing. <laughs> So I think that's why that was an easy one to use, because even if the body gets exhumed or an autopsy, you know, or maybe they look into it later. Well, they use formaldehyde when they, uh, what is it? They like drain all the blood out of your body and then replace it. Yeah, kind of. I mean, I'm not a mortuary person, but. I only know. I casually know what happens when you get embalmed. Uh. But regardless, uh, July 11th, Ted and Rick present this to the assistant Florida state attorney, Russell Edgar Jr. And they're like, obviously, this is attempted murder. And Russell's like, I don't know. He's like, and almost poisoning isn't the same as an actual poisoning. (laughs) So on July 12th, they go to the hospital and they're like, John, will you consent to give us your medical records from when you were in the hospital before? And he's like, absolutely. Absolutely. Do your best. So the doctors had originally assumed that he had, because I guess uh, John had a hepatitis, which, you know, is it comes back. Mm-hmm. And so the doctors never had a clear determination on the illness, and it had resolved so quickly that they were like, ah, I mean, uh, our job's done here. Go home, dude. Yeah. So Ted and Rick get the people from the National Poison Center to meet with the district attorney and lay out the timeline and exactly what a paraformaldehyde sickness would look like and line that up with John's testimony. And the attorney's like, got you. We can do this. <laughs> yeah. They just He just needed a little more. <laughs> In the meantime, the ATF is following Judy. And on July 27th, 1983, they get the okay to do a full house search. They're looking for more of those vitamin C pills, but also for bomb supplies, which they find. Oh. They find that wire. 
And they find it in James' room, along with a shotgun that he's not legally allowed to own, weed, electrician's tape, wire cutters, and chrome fishing pliers. In Kimberly's room, they find the vitamin container. James is arrested immediately. Judy gets arrested an hour later at her salon. She pleads not guilty, gets arraigned pretty quickly. Her bond's 50000 and it's paid almost immediately. Uh, James isn't held because he's a kid. And at that time, we weren't always, you know, throwing kids to the wolves and they get arrested. But John remembers and tells the ATF that Judy had him buying the dynamite because he wanted to because she wanted him to blow up a stump in the backyard okay i'm like that's so rude it is so 80s to have, to have him buy the thing she tried to kill him with yeah okay so then of course the police have to have the slog of piecing together her life and once they ping that both spouses died from mysterious illnesses that sets ted and rick on the hunt in October of 1983, Ted Chamberlain and Special Agent Bob Cousin head to Alabama to interview Bobby Joe Morris's mom and ask for her permission to have his remains exhumed. While they had been able to send the medical reports to the poison specialist, there's nothing like the real thing. And Lodell Morris did not like Judy and was sure that Judy was a snake who hurt her son. Oh. They also request to exhume James Goodyear Sr.'s body, but that has to go to the military, so that takes a little longer. They also learned the truth about Michael Schultz. He hadn't been a kid with Pika. Michael was a kid who was neglected and abused by his mother pretty much his whole life. And from like nine and on, he had been placed in special psychiatric programs. Um, Judy sent him to the Montanari Residential Treatment Center for Disturbed Children in Hialeah, Florida for four years. In 1974, she sent him to the Florida State Hospital in Chattahoochee, Florida. They evaluated him and were like, there's nothing wrong with him. And so then Judy sends him to the Escambia County Mental Health Center to be evaluated there and puts him in foster care. It, it pretty much seems from the time that Judy met James Goodyear Sr., she had been trying to get rid of her illegitimate son. Ugh. They even did an evaluation of Judy's home by the state. And in that letter, the lady was like, Judy can't control her son. And she retaliates in far out ways to his behavior. Like situations like she wrote about Michael looking for food in the cabinets and Judy freaking out on him and throwing all the food in the trash compactor. Just bizarre. I just. Um, she also. What? Uh, it's sorry. just <laughs> as somebody who grew up with food insecure you'd think that she wouldn't do that to her children it's wild how that sometimes goes around yeah, right? right like it just comes full circle it's like i just i don't know <laughs> well on top of that judy also told the state that she suspected and had caught michael doing homosexual acts and that was another reason why she didn't want him living with the family because, of course, it was the 80s. Yep. AIDS. So eventually when Michael was 16 and no longer able to be placed in these teenage centers, he had to go back home with them and did live with Bobby Joe Morris for a little bit. And pretty much as soon as he could, he joined the military. And with all that information and Michael's uh, information from the, the military about his sickness, they reopened his case, too. February 11th, 1984, she's arraigned on the charge of first-degree murder of her son and grand theft from the U.S. government of $20,000. 
That same month, the toxicology report on Bobby Joe Morris's return, he has enough arsenic in his system to kill 11 Bobbies. Wow. By the end of February, they have the tissue samples from James Goodyear that had been taken by the military, and those contain both lead and arsenic. His body is exhumed on March 14, 1984. And then a couple days before Judy goes to trial, a man by the name of Donald Dosette of Chussahowitzka, Florida, asks to have his brother Gerald investigated because apparently Gerald had dated Judy for a year and then he died. So she's like a black widow. Indeed, that's what they call her. And this all goes down March 10th, March 22nd at 10 a.m., 1984, Santa Rosa County Courthouse. It is filled to the brim with people who want to know about this lady who killed all these dudes and stole over $100,000 from the U.S. government. Jury selection takes about a day, ends up with eight men and four women. The jurors are sequestered for the duration of the child. And then we are off to the races. Prosecuting attorney Russ Edgar, presiding judge George E. Lowry, and then Judy's attorneys were James Johnson and his wife, Rebecca. Um, Judy is on trial for Michael uh, first. And honestly, I think what they did here was really smart. Because sometimes in cases where there are serial murders, they do it all together. And the problem is if the person gets off, you can't try that case again. Mm Mm-hmm. So here they are doing an individual trial for every victim. That's real. So smart. you get four chances. Yep. <laughs> uh, part of the prosecution's case hinges on uh, the fact that one of Michael's insurance policies was definitely forged and done while he was sick in the hospital and that he had been found in the river with no life preserver, which seems odd considering that's the one person who needs a life preserver in that boat. Yeah. Um. They also argue that he had a, he, the, the the attorney called it a peculiar relationship, but this was shame, neglect, embarrassment, and just straight out hatred. Um, the defense is like, well, only one policy was taken out when he was in the hospital. The rest were when he was young and they were done by Judy. So they bring in like handwriting analysis to prove that she didn't do it, but somebody did it. And James is... James Johnson is trying very hard to prove that Judy isn't a money-hungry monster. Um, The issue, though, is that the defense found the fisherman who had picked them up. And there were some inconsistencies between what he said he saw on the river and what Judy had told the police that day. And essentially, Judy said that, like, everything in the canoe... um, had tipped over like all their food and stuff. Mm -hmm. And so, but that happened a quarter mile from shore. All right. But when the fisherman picked her up, all of that stuff that should have been a quarter of a mile away was at the shore. Mm. And so essentially what Ted Chamberlain thought was she, she had enlisted her son, James to throw Michael into the water and that they had just paddled to the shore and that when they saw or they heard another boat coming, that's when they flipped everything over into the water. Because with the way the water was moving, there's no way all those items like the sandwiches and all the, the coats and things would have gone downstream, not to the shore yeah. parallel. Mm-hmm. 
And so that was a big part of them, them showing that like, there's no way that these items would have been next to her on shore. Either way though, the trial continues. They discuss the autopsy. They bring in their star witness, James. Um, (sighs) James sticks to the story that his mom told him. Cause he says, Oh, I hit my head. I don't know what happened. Um, and they bring in all these letters and things. They're like, did you write this letter that went to the police? He's just like, yes, I wrote the letter. They don't believe that he did it. They think that Judy wrote both of the letters that were given to the military police. They go over virtually every single thing that James has said under oath. It's very long and drawn out. Um, they bring in medical professionals. One of the things that the defense kind of harped on was that they were like, oh, you know, Michael was this great athlete. He was so great in high school, blah, blah, blah. But that was before he got sick. So it was really kind of a stupid defense, in my opinion. Yeah. It doesn't matter what he was doing when he was 16 in high school, because at 18, he got a debilitating illness. Yeah. It's also, didn't she give him the debilitating illness anyway? Well, that's what they're also trying to prove, too. So March 24th, they bring in testimony of neighbors, friends, who are also talking about how limited that Michael was. Uh, The following Monday, the prosecution continues. Much of the testimony is about all these lies. And really, they're just trying to, to the jury, show that Judy is an unreliable defendant. Big argument comes up because the prosecution tries to bring up the poisoning of Bobby Joe Morris and James Goodyear. And the defense is like, these cases haven't been tried. You can't bring these in. And so the judge ultimately decides, sides with the defense, no discussion of the poison because they haven't fully been proven that they've been poisoned yet. Pretty much embalming is a toxic process. We talked about that before. And arsenic is in, is, was used in embalming in the early 1900s. So any cemeteries that people's bodies are placed in are considered to be contaminated potentially with arsenic. Since both Goodyear and Morris were in the military, they were buried in military cemeteries. So there's no way that you could prove that the arsenic hadn't come from the soil and leached into the men's tissue after both men were dead. Mm. So the prosecution gets a rush on a hair sample from Bobby, citing that arsenic that grows in your hair would not happen by contamination by the soil. The judge approves it, and they're, but they're like, listen, until you have that proof, you've got to drop this line of questioning. They rest their case. Everybody goes home. Uh, like I said, the defense brought in the four like handwriting experts to prove that Judy wasn't forging documents on their part of the case. Uh, pretty much they had mostly the same group of people. They just approached it from two different angles. Um, but then they take a recess. Um, they, they actually they talked to Kimberly and she is distraught. Um, she submits a scrapbook that shows like how much Judy loves everyone. The prosecution put Kimberly through the ringer and she pretty much ends her testimony just saying like she loved him a lot. She really did. If he would have been there, you'd know the relationship they had together and you wouldn't be doing this. So the judge is like, this is kind of tense. And they take a break, which is when Ted Chamberlain shows up at the courtroom with evidence that the wires they found in James room is the same wire as the one in the bombing and that the feds are prepared to indict Judy and James 
now. Oh. And the prosecutor is just like, I need you to wait until this trial is done or at least until this jury goes to deliberate because if the the defense attorneys get wind of this, they'll drag this out. Um, and so they're like, okay. Uh, they bring in a surprise witness, Susan Williams, who worked for Judy at her hair salon. And Susan told the truth, which was that uh, Judy was a drinking, uh, kind of wild lady. Like she was kind of out. She, I wouldn't say wild, but you know, she liked to party. Yeah. And it was kind of, opposing Kimberly's testimony that her mom was a straight-edge saint. Yeah. Apparently, Judy drank on the job all the time. And uh, her salon worker was also able to tell the court about all of the things that Judy did after her son died. Like how she immediately went to the Caribbean. Oh. And went on a couple cruises and things. Well, that's a red flag. It definitely doesn't look good for her. Both sides give their closing arguments at 6.43 p.m., March 30th, 1984. What would have been Michael's 23rd birthday, the jury begins deliberation. That night, the feds take James into custody for creating the bomb, and Judy is served with a warrant uh, for grand theft through insurance fraud, as well as attempted murder with the bomb. Oof. Uh, Special Agent DeWitt Finkannon of the ATF and Ted Chamberlain deliver the papers personally, and Judy attempts to attack Ted as her lawyer tries to restrain her, and she tells him that I will see you rot in hell. Uh, Then Ted went to James, who is, he's even though he's a teenager and he's being held at a youth detention center, his bond was $500,000. Whoa. In the 80s? That's so, crazy. Mm-hmm. Man, I'm like, the feds were serious about the whole bomb thing. Yeah, right? It gets close to midnight, and the judge says to the jury, hey, you can retire and come back to this tomorrow. But the group's like, no, we're almost close. We'll get back We'll get back to you soon. 1 a.m. on March 31st, they tell the judge they've reached a, ver- reached a verdict. So early in the morning, everyone's back in the courthouse. Judy is guilty of her son's death in the first degree and guilty of grand theft as well. Um, she hid her face from the cameras as uh, Kimberly cried outside the courtroom. Her penalty phase was April 2nd, and she stuck to her story. She said it was an accident. During the penalty phase, like the defense can talk for themselves. And so Judy gets on stand and the prosecutor's like, listen, the trial's over. I just want some answers. And it is hostile. Like, I was reading through the transcripts of this. And she's like, you railroaded me. This was a witch hunt. She's like, I took my attorney's advice and told, and they told me not to talk to you. She's like, so you went on a witch hunt. And you talked to everybody else except for me. And I never got to tell my part of the story. Edgar tries to push her to lie under oath. But her lawyer's like, you don't have to say anything about the trial. The trial is over. Um. Ultimately, it's not a good look for Judy because she just seems angry. And you want the judge and the jury at this point to view you sympathetically. Mm-hmm. And it did not happen. Doesn't she still have two more murder trials to go through? Yes! Oh, no. <laughs> Judy's lawyer's like, listen, I've known her for years. That's why I supported her. He's like, I know this case is weary. Like, do you want to send her to, to death row for something? You might not be true. Like, it might not be true. You might be wrong. And they said her sentencing for June 6th. Um, In the interim, more details come back. 
Geronimo, uh, our, our friend Rick Geronimo Steele, had a vested interest in the fact that he learned from Judy's friends that she said that her mother was full blood Apache and her grandfather was Geronimo, her great grandfather or whatnot. And so he ended up contacting the tribe and the tribe sent a letter saying that they had no members of their tribe who were ever named Anne Lou, Mary Lou, or any combination of those words. <laughs> and that there wasn't a tribe, there wasn't a mesquite Apache tribe, like Judy said. Um, so there's no, like, she she isn't a part of our tribe. I don't know why this is important to your case, but here you go. <sighs> Judy shows up on June 6th. She is given life in prison, natural life, which is about 25 years. October 16th, um, the trial for uh, John Gentry's attempted murder starts. Spare you those details. They use all the same witnesses. Lots of technical jargon about bomb creation and such. Uh, the problem is Judy didn't have her fancy lawyers anymore oh. because John Gentry filed three different civil cases against her in March of that year. So all of her money is tied up in these cases because he is seeking money for pain and suffering money for the medical bills, and also, because you tried to kill me. Yep. Also, Orlando had set her trial for James Goodyear in January of 85, and pending the outcome of that trial, they were going to proceed with Bobby Morris's trial. Judy is found guilty of attempted murder of her fiancé, given 12 more years in prison. 1985, they find her guilty of the murder of James Goodyear, and she's given the death penalty. They pretty much don't do the trial for Bobby Morris because you can't death penalty somebody twice. Or can you? <laughs> Judy's appeals would stretch out for the next 13 years. Um, she spent that time in death row at the Broward Women's Detention Center in Pembroke Pines, Florida. Uh, the court declared her indigent, essentially saying she's broke. She can't pay for any of her own court fees. So help her out, please. Um James Goodyear Jr. was ultimately not convicted of attempted murder. Uh, both James and Kimberly supported their mother until her death, calling it a hate crime against God and humanity. They wrote letters and pleaded with the governor of Florida to give her a stay of execution. Um, on March 29th, 1998, Judy spent her last meal with her children, her attorney, and her spiritual advisor. Outside of the prison, her cousin, uh, Jean Eaton, gave a statement to reporters saying she's not afraid. She's a born again Christian and death is just part of God's plan for life. Uh, John Gentry would go on to get remarried to someone who didn't want to kill him. Yeah. He had four children and five grandchildren and he died a couple years after Judy in 2005 at the age of 58. Why are you guys so um, young? He was the one guy in the story I, I liked. What a bummer, right? Like he survives like a bombing attempt. He survives trying her trying to poison him to death. And then he just, what, do you have a heart attack? That seems kind of lame. I've, I found his obituary. Uh, so, uh, yeah, it didn't say just that, you know, he had a wonderful family. And at least he was happy in the end of his life. Yeah, I mean, oh. you know what? You got her. You got her. And you know what? Here's the thing. She really could have gotten away with it if she had just been satisfied with the giant massive sum of money she had already gotten in her successful business why did she need right? to kill one more guy like 
listen, if you just that was it was the greed. It always happens that the way. Greed. They get a little too greedy. It's like you already have so much money. You would have gotten away with it. Nobody could have proven the other ones. And then you got to move on to bombing. It just goes to show you stick and to that... poisoning. <laughs> but uh, speaking of Judy, I think there's no way they didn't plan this out because uh, she's executed on Michael's 37th birthday. March 30th, 1998, at 7 a.m., they lead her to the electric chair. When asked if she had any last words, she just said, no, sir. And she was pronounced dead at 7.13 a.m., making her the first woman executed in Florida in 150 years. Of course, a couple years after that would be... uh... Gosh, how did I forget her name that bad? I don't know. Who are you talking about? The woman monster... Charlize Theron plays her. Oh, I, I've i never seen Monster. I literally did like a two-part podcast on her this year. Oh. Listen, this is how ADHD works, y'all. Um, this is your job. Eileen Wernos. Oh, yeah, yeah, Eileen yeah. Okay, okay, okay. Eileen Wernos would be the next woman to be uh, executed by, by Florida. But there have only been two. And the last about, there are about currently 13 women on death row in Florida, but a lot of times they get uh, stays of execution or their uh, cases get kind of downgraded to life in prison. No, I, for some reason we, they don't like killing Eileen Warnos, she was the one that was a sex worker that was, uh, her defense was that she was defending herself. Yeah. Right. Right. Okay. And it was, yeah, her case is. Tragic. it's kind of rough like, it's just I, honestly sad. i felt bad for her like i don't feel so bad for late on like after the after like the killing like assaulting her parents thing i kind of stop uh having sympathy as she meets these for judy yeah for judy because she's like well i decided to murder him well i decided to murder him well i had to murder my son well i had to murder another guy it's like okay it's Listen, at some point it starts being, are you picking bad partners? Because John seemed funny. Um, and he liked her weirdness. Yeah, he was like on board and he was like, oh, good. You're pregnant. I'm happy for you. Like, tell me, tell me we don't see guys that aren't like, oh, you're pregnant. Oh, you can't be pregnant again. Or like, oh, no, what are we going to do? This guy's like, fuck, yeah, be pregnant. Oh, I just cursed. No, he was so happy. And I think he was so bummed when he realized. Like, dang, she's been trying to kill me for over a year. Oh, man. What did I do? Dang it, Bobby. Things just got a little stale. Dang it, Judy. (laughs) Yeah. He's like, things just got a little stale. I didn't think that was a reason to kill me. Yeah, I felt bad for John. Yeah, I mean. Definitely not for Judy. I mean, Goodyear sounds cool, too. Although you would have expected Goodyear to be the one with a really good business because of the tires. Oh, I don't think he was related to those people. Uh, Yeah, but I don't know. He seemed like a decent, like, army guy. And then, like, you you had um, Michael, who, like, she she poisoned, ruined his life, and then She treated him so bad his whole life. And he just wanted to try and have a good life as a in the military. And she destroyed him. And then when that didn't work, she drowned him. That is the worst one by far. I think that's the one where I really lost it for her. Because before that, I'm like, listen, we don't know what was going on with these men behind closed doors or what they were pulling. Um, right. But Michael did nothing to Michael her. was like, 
oh, mom, uh, I learned some stuff in school. And she's like, gotta kill him now. He knows too much. And then when she fails and he still but... wants to spend time with her, she's like, gotta kill him some more. I suspect she actually killed him outside of the boat and then took him on the boat and just pushed him over. Right, like, yeah. He was... There was even a part where Ted Chamberlain took a canoe out to the middle of the boat, like the middle of the river, and jumped in the water himself and was like, I was able to get back in the boat. Yeah. He's like, these waters aren't that choppy or dangerous. Like, mm-hmm. this seems suspicious. Yeah, he definitely went the extra mile. No, yeah. Ted and, uh, like, Geronimo Steele. <laughs> that is a name. Uh... I should have named myself Definitely it is, something but like that. Except I am not um, Native American. You did. So. You're a steel heart. Steel heart. Um, that's, yeah, I guess. But still, like, just that name just to naturally occur. Although I guess everybody gives their baby a name. He sounds like he could be, like, either a 007 knockoff or, like, a cowboy. Yeah. Um, I, honestly, <clears throat> like... This this case but, really spa- spans like thirty something years. It's mm-hmm. crazy, and that's the interesting thing about uh, the like the the definition for serial killer is just that there needs to be a cooling off period in between them, and so it was almost like any time anything happened in the relationship, she was just like, "Okay, I'm done now." Yeah, like. The first sign of conflict, she's like, I'm out. The part where the rest of us start going, maybe I should think about breaking up with this person, or maybe we need couples counseling. She's like, how am I going to poison him this time? Right. This one doesn't drink coffee every morning. What are we going to do? Yeah, this this one wasn't in Vietnam, so he doesn't drink coffee every morning. Um, Yeah, but, well, I guess the next step here is uh, you are supposed to tell me something about new jersey today that's spooky so i'm gonna talk about um it's sort of about weird new jersey but it's also sort of just about new jersey's paranormal stuff in general it's just a lot of that is already outlined in weird new jersey so Mm -hmm. um a little bit of background on weird new jersey i'm moving a little closer to my computer um Weird New Jersey started uh, in 1989 uh, as a personal newsletter sent to friends by Mark Morin and Mark... uh, Oh, they're both named Mark. I didn't realize that. Skewerman, S-C-E-U-R-M-A-N. It's hard to pronounce. Um, Abandoned places, eerie experiences, uh, weird people, strange landmarks are all common subjects for that magazine. Um, It spawned Mm -hmm. the publication of Weird U.S., covering stories across Mm -hmm. the United States. That led to a series of books for other states, including Florida, Illinois, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Texas, California, and New England, and a TV series, Weird U.S., on the History Channel. Um, So, I mean, it really, like, Weird New Jersey was the first time we really had, like, just some people that were like, let's go out and look at weird stuff in this state. Um, There's this weird New Jersey pride that people have, which is strange because New Jersey's awful. Um, the only good things there are like pork roll pizza and, uh, you know, my friends. Um, <laughs> well, it's such an interesting thing because so many people hate New Jersey. I don't hate it entirely. Well, simultaneously, 
love New Jersey. It's the black hole state. It's like, it's easy to get in. There's no tolls. But when you're leaving, there's tolls and it's just awful. They even have an estate tax. When you die, they will charge money to your, like taxes to your estate if you're moving out of the state. They, like oh, if you sell your house to if move. if you die. Oh, if, no. I mean, well, in terms of death, we have that here in Pennsylvania too because not only like did it have to be paid on my grandfather, but we also had to pay taxes on it once we got the money. Oh, yeah. And then once it, like if. I'm like, so you took two taxes? If you this? sell your house in New Jersey, you only have the normal taxes. But if you sell your house in New Jersey and buy a house somewhere else or like, you know, plan to move out of the state within a certain amount of time, they will charge you a tax mm-hmm. fee. For New Jersey, for oh, leaving okay. the state. Um, it's Jeez. pretty awful. Um, so the first thing I want to talk about with uh, like creepy things in New Jersey, and this is a place that I've actually been. I- I'm trying to stick to places I've been, um, but there are a few that I have like secondhand accounts from people I knew very well. Um, uh-huh. Clinton Road in West Milford, New Jersey, um, in Passaic County. Um, is a myriad of local legends and ghost stories. I'm just going to touch on a few. Um, The Ghost Kid. Um, Now, Clinton Road is about a 10 to 12 mile road um, that runs from north to south. Um, It is only two lanes. So it is uh, two yellow lines, two white lines, and that's it. Like, it's it's a very narrow road. Um, The couple of times I've gone there, it's been very foggy. You gotta go at night. Um, it's very foggy. Okay, I want to go. Twice in a row, it was foggy, uh, which is kind of weird because you don't see fog that often in New Jersey. Um, uh, right. now, Cl- now, West Milford is up in the mountainous area. It's actually, I didn't list this actually in my writing, but I can touch on it as well. Uh, Jungle Habitat, which was a drive-through safari from the 70s, uh, is near there. Um, okay. So down there's a, there's a very sharp curve on Clinton Road called Dead Man's Curve, and there are more, there ah, are two bridges that. on um, Clinton Road. Nobody's quite sure which bridge it is, but one of those two bridges, and a lot of people say it's on the one by Dead Man's Curve. There's a story about, and the stories are all different. Everybody's got a different version of it, but somehow a kid dies or drowns there. And the urban legend or the local legend goes that if you flip a coin into the water, Ghost Kid will throw it back. Nice. Now, there are stories from people saying, uh, I read one where it was some people driving by in their car and they had thrown a coin in on the way like up to a place. And then they took the same road back. And they the they stopped on the bridge because they were you know being uh, one of them was telling the other one about like the ghost kid and stuff and the coin mm-hmm. flicks back up and hits the window. Now um, there's cool. all kinds of stories like that. Um, I did not stop on either of the bridges to do the ghost kid thing. Um, Come on, I strongly do not believe in messing with ghosts, um, especially. The I mean, ghosts totally, of I agree with you, but. I like watching other people mess with I, Yes, this. I'm not the stupid... Listen, I may be white, but I'm not stupid white, all right? Uh, I'm not the horror movie white person, all right? I was raised to know okay. better. So I don't mess with ghosts. I mean, if I see them, I see I them, you. whatever. But, like, I am not someone who messes with that. Um, I have mm-hmm. been around Dead Man's Curve. It is pretty curvy. Uh, I think the first time I went, uh, my friend owned a rental car company. 
Um, and we took a 15-passenger van. Now, mind you, the only oh, people geez. in the van were my ex-wife, uh, we were married at the time, and um, my friend's boyfriend. Um, and mm-hmm. so, you know, there was just three of us in a 15-passenger van, huge white van. Uh, one of the urban legends is that uh, if you go down Clinton Road, a white truck will turn its headlights on and chase you. So we came across a car, and we were kind of freaked out because there's, like, no cars on Clinton Road. It's in the middle of nowhere. And so we turn mm. around because – and then they start following us. And we think this is somebody well, – well, it was one of two things. My mind as I'm driving, too, and I'm like, you know what? It's probably somebody following us because of all the Clinton Road, like, local legends and stuff. Right. So we – Somebody knows the story. We're driving down the road, and we pull off at a well-lit gas station once we get off of Clinton Road. And the car pulls up next to us, and it turns out we had a big white van that they thought was a truck in the fog. And so they thought yeah, we so they were, were the truck. they were following the truck. And so they were following us. And when we got out, we were like, we thought you were people, either uh, the truck or people messing with us. And so we figured we'd oh, stop at a well-lit place. And so they were like, you know, Smart. we saw you pulling over the well-lit place and that you were a van. And we figured we'd stop and talk. So we actually had like a lovely like half-hour conversation with these people that were about our age. I was in my mid-20s. So like, you know... <laughs> Um, it's just like Clinton Road is kind of a neat thing. Um, rumors of bad vibes have been floating in the area since it was first settled in 1905. And some of this is, um, I have pulled uh, excerpts and things. Um, in 1905, Mm -hmm. J. Percy Creighton wrote about the woods just beyond Clinton Furnace. It was never advisable, a quote, it was never advisable to pass through the five miles woods after dark. For tradition tells us they were infested with bands of robbers and counterfeiters, to say nothing of the witches Mm. that held their nightly dances and carousels at Green Island, and the ghosts that then made their appearance in such frightful forms that it was more terrifying to the peaceful inhabitants than would wild animals or even the, they use a a different word, but indigenous people. Um, That often passed. Uh, Clinton Road even had a castle. Cross Castle is how most locals remember it, named for the man who built it, Richard J. Cross. But Cross himself and his family mm-hmm. called the place Beerfort, after the mountain range it was nestled in. In 1905, Cross bought uh, heavily forested land around Newfoundland, Newfoundland, New Jersey, and began construction of the castle-like mansion. Its walls, which have intrigued so many over the years, were three stories high. Um... Wow. So there was actually a castle. Um, I couldn't find the uh, year it was torn down, um, but there are stories that when the castle was torn down, um, the construction crews found uh, a basement, which they, mm-hmm. when they were walking through the castle, they could find no entrance to. But when they went in, there looked like there was a bunch of like satanic stuff on the walls, um, mm. supposedly. Now, you know, this was also probably 20 years ago, and the Church of Satan has gotten a lot different now, and I don't know how much truth there is in that. There's always a lot of people who just think like, all right, I'm going to draw a pentagram, Satan. Uh, It has nothing to do with the actual Church of Satan. It's just, I think this is spooky. Edgy teenagers. So it's probably stuff like that, Mm -hmm. yeah. 
Um, there are also stories of unusual animals and other creatures on uh, Clinton Road, witches and ghosts, as well as UFOs and aliens. Um, most of those are newer or um, they're less uh, connected to actual stories. Like there's there's less crossover of people agreeing on like this happens here or, you know, the, the, the it's a little bit less organized. And so it's probably not entirely mm-hmm. true and has been spurred on by all the other stories. Um, there are also rumors which are. I'm pretty sure true that um, the Iceman, Richard Kuklinski, may have dumped bodies Mm -hmm. along Clinton Road. Um, This only feeds into the tales of ghosts along the dark, foggy stretch of road. Um, uh, The Iceman um, is a very well-known, like, ghost story, sort of, like, spooky uh, thing as far as Clinton Road goes, and New Jersey in general. Um, Uh, I was going to say, is that how New Jersey views him? Because from you know, people outside of the state, he's a monstrosity. Oh, he's the, the, it's the, is he a serial killer or was he a hitman? That's the constant argument. Yeah. I think the thing with him was that like, and again, I know you'll probably do an episode on him later, but, um, he was, uh, definitely like he said he was a hitman, but there's no real concrete mm-hmm. evidence, but he definitely murdered more than one person. Um, the- well, he also said he enjoyed it. <clears throat> Yeah, I I didn't read his full thing because I wanted to let you do all the work. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But uh, yeah, I I did uh, just do like a little, I just wanted a little blurb because he did supposedly draw, like dump one of the bodies along that road. Uh, There are a few people who have said they've been driving down the road and seen a body bag uh, with, and he he froze at least one of his victims so that would obscure the time of death and make autopsies harder, which is actually really smart. Um, it really is. Uh, only f- it's, it, yeah, it's not a good. Thing also, to there's do. a a great story, and I'm not entirely sure how truthful this story is, but that one of his victims he killed, and he put the person in a um one of those big metal tubs that is used to like they used to tr- put gas in. Oh, like a fifty gallon gallon barrel yeah like one of those barrels those big metal mm-hmm. barrels and it, he he left it outside of a restaurant and every day he would come by and eat his sandwich and sit on top of it and he just wanted to see how long it would take before somebody actually looked into it i heard that one too and found the body um yeah next i'm gonna so. talk about whippoorwill road um this one's a little mm-hmm. more obscure it's a shorter stretch of road i have also been here um, mm-hmm. the, the first story of Whippoorwill Road is, uh, the witches of Whippoorwill Road. And this is the most, pr- the primary mm-hmm. urban legend for the area. This is in Monmouth County, New Jersey. Um, oh, I know that area. I do too. I grew up there. Um, so, <laughs> um, rumor has it that in the 19th century, 15 women were accused of witchcraft, executed, and buried mm-hmm. outside the cemetery. Local legend says that they placed a hex on the community and within 10 months, all of the farmers that accused them died. It goes on to say that if you drive down this road in the middle of night, you will go over 15 bumps. Now, I can tell you, having driven down Whipple Wheel Road in a 1991 Dodge Shadow, mind you, it was like 2012. So this is a very old car. I was old enough to drink. Um, It had very bad shocks. Um, There's more than 15 bumps and you would not be able to tell if you went over 15 bumps. It it is not a well-paved road. It is more like mm-hmm. gravel, but like 
like okay. really hard packed. So like when you you bottom out in a pothole, then there's lots of them on that road. It's like real bad. So it is not a good road. You cannot go fast. Uh, there's and both Clinton Road and Whipple Road Road have stories of the KKK and all that kind of stuff. Um, there is a story, and I couldn't find it written down anywhere, but I remember seeing it a long time ago. Something about when you go to the cemetery, there is a statue with a person. And if you do this certain thing, it'll turn its head and look at you. Um, I didn't get out of the car there because I did get bad vibes. And it, and it wasn't foggy Ooh. like Clinton Road. Clinton Road was spooky. Like, even if you don't stop, Clinton Road is spooky. It, it just has such a long history. I mean, like, dating back to... <sighs> Sorry. Um, dating back to... Uh... What are you doing? Uh, I gotta pause the podcast here. Sorry, I just my phone is telling it's telling me I'm getting a what? phone call, but I have no phone call showing up. Can you hear me? Yeah. Okay. All right. Are you it's are you fine. done? I just okay. Sorry. All right. And three, two, one. The, I I didn't get out of the car on Whipple Real Road. It, I was just like it's it was too short, and it was a really like, a really quiet community. So I didn't really want to get out. Um, and, you know, that, that, Whippoorwill Road wasn't a big adventure. I went there. It was a little spooky, but it wasn't really the same. It wasn't on the same level as Clinton Road. Okay. Um, the next thing is uh, psychiatric hospitals. Uh, New Jersey, uh, having one of the highest population densities in the United States, and with a higher population comes... Larger concentration of mental health facilities, uh, most of which date back to less than optimal treating plans for treatment plans for patients. Uh, this, of course, leads to ghost stories and legends about them. Um, it's not really uncommon in any state, you know, especially with like ghost adventures and things. They're always going to psychiatric hospitals. It's just a thing. Um, I can say that Marlboro Psychiatric Hospital, located in Monmouth County, New Jersey, uh, was closed in the late 90s and early 2000s. Um, that was not too far from where I lived when I was married. Um, okay. After it was closed, uh, at some point between when it closed and, you know, when we met, my ex-wife had gone there. Um, and I did go back with her. I used to pass it, actually, on my way to work, uh, where it used to be. Um, and they had, like, little neighborhoods for, like, the nurses and the doctors to live in. Um, so, like, they, they lived nearby the hospital. Um, I didn't... The, the building was completely, like, closed down. You couldn't get into it. But um, there was definitely, like, light poles that were bent sideways somehow. Uh, like, like you know, lamp posts and street corners. Like that, but, like, bent sideways. It was really weird. Um, it was very spooky. Um, I... It was one of the closest ones I've ever been to. Like, I didn't realize it was so close. Apparently, there were a lot of stories about, like, when they closed it down, they just released all of the patients and were just like, good luck. Which yeah, sounds about right. That happened a um, lot. And there were people that lived in the surrounding farms because uh, that area, there's a lot. It's near, like, Colts Neck um, and Howell. And, you know, Monmouth County has a lot of farmland in it. And so there's a lot of people with farms that they'd just see these random strange people like just like walking across their property like talking to themselves and you know doing people who have mental illness stuff but like you know people kind of freaked out uh, and so there's a lot of stories like that that come from there they're less spooky now 
than they would have been, you know, um, especially, you know, when you're, you know, a medical professional, you kind of just feel bad that these people could have been helped, but weren't. Um, then you have Greystone Psychiatric Hospital. Um, I never went there, but, uh, it had been closed down for a long time, uh, by the time I was an adult. Um, my younger brother used to go there. He went there like three or four times, uh, before they tore it down. Um, and he said it was really spooky. He actually used to have this old VHS video recorder that he used to record everything on. And, uh, he had some recordings of the inside that just looking at those, and they weren't doing goofy teenagers, they weren't spray painting or anything, they were just walking around. And, um, Mm -hmm. it was creepy. Just on video, it was creepy. Um, I don't know if there's something about, like, an old abandoned building, especially one where people suffered in, but, like, they get this feeling when you walk in them, you know? Like, and and you know what I mean, like, it's it's just kind of a, a strange feeling, um... That kind of brings me to Trenton Psychiatric Hospital. Now, Trenton Psychiatric mm-hmm. Hospital, as far as I know, is still operating. Um, I was actually in nursing school doing my clinical hours, and I spent a few days at that facility. Not overnights, but, you know, I would drive out in the morning and stay until the afternoon. Um, okay. And, and so I worked a few days in that facility, and uh, I can assure you that it's not the patients that are creepy there. It's a whole place. It's so old mm. that, like, it's got awful vibes. Like, it's it's very weird. Like, you know, um, I I was, like, you know, doing my clinicals and things, and it would just, uh, you get that prickly feeling on the back of your neck, and then, like, you just feel mm. on edge, like somebody's watching you. And, like, you know, those are all really hard to, like, ooh, it's a spooky ghost is, like, what everybody kind of thinks. But, like, it's just a, a mm. really bad vibe. And sometimes... Well, I mean, sometimes the bad vibes, I think, are just because of the awful stuff going on. Yeah. Um, Obviously, it had gotten um, much improved upon uh, by the time I was there. Although, I don't know exactly how good their total of care is. Because, obviously, they're not going to show us, you know, to the, you know, units where people are being treated badly. If we're doing clinicals, right. they're going to take us to the least dangerous, most, uh, like, brightly lit, nice area to work. So, and I mean, but even those areas were kind of creepy. Just pulling onto the grounds was creepy. Like, it, it was like something out of The Shining. Like, it was, it was very strange. And maybe it's just my perception of it, but, like, that's how I felt pulling onto that property. Um, the whole place is, like, gated in. Um, it, it was a weird place to be. Uh, and so, like, that, that was really creepy. It is not a place where you can just go, uh, because obviously it's still in operation. Um, right. But a place you can go is Asbury Park, New Jersey. Um, and I think okay. this is the last place on our tour, um, of New Jersey with specific locations. <laughs> um, uh, the first thing is Palace Amusements, which uh, many people from New Jersey will know exactly where I'm going with this. Um, have you ever heard of Tilly? What? Tilly. Nope. Tilly is uh, the Who's... face that you see a lot. It's like an animated um, face. It's cartoonish. It looks like a sort of a young gentleman with a big smile. Um, uh, it, it is a mural that was on Palace Amusements, and it is one of the most famous things that's ever come out of Asbury Park. Um, Palace Amusements was constructed in 1888. 
and was an indoor amusement park. Over the years, its operations, oh. its operations, the building was expanded to include more attractions, including a Ferris wheel, bumper cars, a house of mirrors, a fun house, a carousel. The most memorable part, of course, was Tilly. Um, this guy has a horrible looking nose. Uh, the person who started it or Tilly? No, the, the actual character is kind of creepy looking. Yeah, it's creepy, right? It's mm-hmm. creepy, and uh, you can absolutely find it um, on the internet if you just look up uh, Tilly, uh, T-I-L-L-I-E. Um, mm-hmm. The It's still widely available, and um, it's been featured in multiple issues of uh, Weird New Jersey magazine, because it is like... See, now I need to see if someone... Any of my ghost groups have visited this place. Probably the not. the building just looks interesting. Um, the... Where did... I had the information on when it closed down. I believe it closed down in 2004. It was torn down. Um, it closed down in... 19, uh, it closed down in 1988. But it was torn down um, because it was just considered entirely unsafe. There was no way they could leave it standing in 2004. Um, and so... Well, I'm looking at a picture and it's massive. Like, it's a, it has its own little horizon across the river. Oh, it's a huge... It was huge. I mean, it had to... Look how much had to be inside it. It had to be an entire carnival field in one building. So, um... Oh, that's really cool. Yeah, it was... It was there for a hundred years. Oh, I hate when stuff like that gets destroyed, Um, though. It's just really... Yeah. Yeah, it sucks. A lot of people in Asbury Park really tried to save it. Um... There was a lot of people that were like, we need to make sure this stays. We don't want it to, like, you know, be destroyed or torn down. But there was just... I mean, to have a building that's, like, late Victorian architecture that was an amusement yeah. park? That's wild. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, the fact that it even stayed open for 100 years is crazy. I mean, it was... Um... And, and the funny thing is that this isn't necessarily a creepy thing, but the, the clown from the front is creepy. Um, Tilly is a creepy oh, image, yeah. um, and I've seen it used at horror shows and things. Like we'll have really good artists come out and do like a creepy version, and it's like the mouth is where you enter into like a you know a uh, the next part of the con- attraction or whatever, and it's it's freaky. Um, and so it's in looking up pictures of Tilly, you can't imagine how many people have gotten tattoos of this. Oh, I can. I'm from New Jersey. There are so many. Well, listen, it's either a New Jersey devil or, uh, you know, Tilly. We don't got a lot from New Jersey that you can really be proud of. <laughs> yes, proud of the weird clown. Yes. Um, the next thing in Asbury Park is Morrow Castle. Okay. Uh, September 7th, 1934, Captain Robert Wilmot of the passenger liner Morrow Castle died of what the crew called a heart attack and a nervous stomach. The next day, September 8th, 1934, in the midst of a terrible storm with a crew newly promoted to higher stations due to the death of the captain, a fire broke out aboard the ship. The crew was underpaid and had little respect for their superiors, so when they decided the ship was not worth saving, they deployed the lifeboats and fled without concern for the passengers still aboard the ship. Some of those passengers leapt into the freezing waters of the Atlantic Ocean. 86 passengers and 49 crew members died. The the ship continued to drift and ran aground only a few hundred feet from Convention Hall on Asbury Park Boardwalk. Now, I can tell you, I've been to where, like, there is a, um, like, a stone 
uh, like a, you know, like a placky stone thing. I forget what they're called. A monument, mm-hmm. sort of, but small. Uh, right. Kind of giving you okay. the brief details of, like, that's where it crashed and a bunch of people died and that stuff. I can tell you that. Oh, right, right. That A memorial type. Yeah, like a memorial. Thing. That's what I was looking for. That's the word. ADHD, yay. Um, so hey. the, this, um, this part of the boardwalk uh, where the uh, convention hall was is kind of spooky. Like, and even without knowing about that, because I didn't know about the Moro the first time I went there, but I went into the convention hall, which the boardwalk kind of just runs through it now. Um, mm-hmm. It's it's got a creepy feeling. Like, you can feel that you've run inside it. Like, you could have your eyes closed and your ears covered and run through it and just be able to feel it. Like, it, it's... And I don't... There's. I think there's probably more ghost stories specifically about convention hall, and I'm pretty sure, because I did a ghost tour with my ex-wife once um, with... The one paranormal bookshop, which was an excellent tour, um, but I tried not to use their information for this because, you know, they're trying to sell tours. So um, I figured maybe we, uh, although they were very nice people and it was a very nice tour, um, you know, it, it was, uh, it's it's a creepy place. Asbury Park has got a little spooky in it. Like every, like every corner of Asbury Park has like this creepy feel and it's not a new thing. Um, Asbury Park native Stephen Crane, before he wrote The Red Badge of Courage, uh, wrote an article called Ghosts on the New Jersey Coast for the New York Press in 1894. He told of the ghosts of two lovers on a beach in Deal, an elderly laughing woman in Barnegat Light, and an angry Revolutionary War era Brit looking to kill fishermen on Long Beach, according to a Stephen Crane encyclopedia. Um... Yeah, so, I mean, like, people have been writing about how haunted Asbury Park is since 1894 or earlier. Um, and about oh, just how okay. haunted the Jersey Shore is. Uh, which isn't really surprising to me. Um, there are so many ghost stories for Asbury Park. Like, literally every, almost every corner. Um, it, it, I didn't realize that Asbury Park had any, like, amusement type things at all. There. Not anymore. I just thought that was the name of the place i didn't realize it actually had was like a amusement park type area oh yeah um it absolutely um it, it was it is no longer um now the amusement parks are um uh point pleasant and seaside heights uh which are mm-hmm. along the new jersey shore they have boardwalks and attractions sea he- seaside heights has more um but you know that's also where jersey shore was filmed so no thanks um i was more of a point pleasant girl myself um, this is the first place I went. Mini I've golfing. only been to Seaside. A, I've only been to Seaside a couple times, but it's not really my favorite. place. Yeah, I mean, if I was to take you to the- like exactly what happened on the show is what you do there. Yeah, you drink and you go to the beach, and that's about it. Yeah, I mean, I honestly lived in New Jersey Even the- a long time, and I I didn't really go to the beach that much. I would run on the boardwalk, but like I didn't really go onto the beach. Yeah, I mean, even well, there was a boardwalk I went to. Maybe was it last summer that I liked. I went to like a weird little wildlife preserve and I was very happy about it, but we weren't at seaside. Oh no, no, that's, we uh, I think that, that that one is South of seaside. It's a state park, right? Um, it, it was, they had like animals, not um like water animals though. Not like, other. Oh, I'm not sure. They're like sharks and stuff. Was it a, an aquarium? Yes. Like a little mini. It sounds like Jenkinson's aquarium in Point Pleasant. Um, it could be, uh, again, it could also be other ones. There was more than one. I think Wildwood also has, uh, that. And a lot of people from Pennsylvania often go to Wildwood. 
Um, as yeah. far as just spookiness of New Jersey, I mean, I didn't, I know that Brian had covered, um, the Jersey Devil because it's one of his favorites. Um, <laughs> obviously I'm from New Jersey. He loves the Jersey Devil. So I would also, I also really like the Jersey Devil. I'm really interested in the Jersey Devil, but I'm not going to beat an old horse. You know, you guys have already done that. So, um. You're not going to beat a Jersey Devil Listen, nobody's beaten the Jersey Devil. It's been around long before we showed up, and it'll be around long after it's gone. That's what the indigenous uh, Lenny Lenape of... uh... that That's one of the... For me, that's like when I think that a cryptid is real is when there is, like, writings from 500 years ago about it. Oh, yeah. I'm like, okay, there's something to that. Well, obviously, I don't think that the Lenape really kept a lot of, like, written down stuff, but their oral history, I believe, did have... Yeah, but the oral tradition is just as... as, Yeah. No, it's just as valid. Just as good, yeah. Um, But yeah, apparently, and again, I'm... I'm not an expert on the Jersey Devil, but they did actually have some stuff about that. So the, the Pine Barrens are creepy. They're terrifying. Even without paranormal, the Pine Barrens have endangered rattlesnakes that only live there. They have all kinds of snakes and poisonous creatures, and the water is brackish and dark. Wait, wait. New Jersey has snakes that don't exist anywhere else? New Jersey Pine Barrens uh, a rattlesnake. The Pine Barrens Rattlesnake. Wow. We also have the Pine Barrens Tree Frog, or they have the Pine Barrens Tree Frog, which is an endangered species as well. Um, oh, they're so The pretty. Pine Barrens are one of the largest uh, uninterrupted forests uh, without population inside them um, in mm-hmm. uh, the Northeast. Um, oh, yeah, cool. and Yeah, because Appalachia would have it, except there's all these different cities mm-hmm. in, in between. Yep. All the spots, because I always, uh, where I used to live, I always used to see people like coming out of the woods, and they would walk through the towns, mm-hmm. and then they would go back into the Appalachian Mountain Trail, and I'm like, that's kind of strange, but whatever. It's real weird. Um, I will say, setting the Jersey Devil stuff aside, um, there are a lot of ghost stories. That, I mean, like I actually have a few myself that happened on places you can go in New Jersey if you want to see. A creepy, spooky place, but also kind of get a peek at what history, what life was like in the nineteen eighteen, the nineteenth century in the eighteen nineties. Um, I my mom worked on Long Street Farm when I was a kid uh, as a living history farm, so it means that all the employees show up in you know nineteen eighteen nineteenth century. Oh, clothing. period. Yes, clothes. like Victorian clothing. Um, and they work the farm. There's real horses, goats, you know, stuff like that. Cheap. Um. Okay. Uh, I I think there's cows, but I haven't been there in a long time. So, um, but when I was a kid, my mom was working in the summer kitchen, and a summer kitchen is literally a kitchen you cook in in the summer from the 1800s because they didn't have electricity. So, um, they had wood stoves, oh. and so they would have a detached kitchen, um, that would be near the kitchen in the main house, but it would be outside, so it's separated from the rest of the house. And there was a porch that ran from the regular kitchen to the summer kitchen. And my mom would always be working in the summer kitchen. That was her job. She would cook all day with the wood stove and, you know, do stuff like that. And it's a demonstration for, like, the summer camp kids and stuff to come in and see. Um, so a- along that porch, there were windows to the to one of the cellars. And that cellar ha- was a uh, canning cellar. So from the main kitchen, you could go down the stairs into that canning cellar. And there was a shelf that hung by four two-by-fours that came down... Um, and it was like a big square wooden shelf and, you know, there was never anything on it. 
So one day I'm sitting on that porch and I'm, you know, playing with nothing because it's in the 19th century. So I have like corn cob checkers uh, and a ball in a cup. Like that's like there wasn't much to do. And I was the only one there because I'd gotten in trouble in school. And so I wasn't at school. I was with my mom at work. Gotcha. So I'm sitting on this porch and I'm playing with one of these 19th century toys that are bought because Game Boy was way cooler. Um, <laughs> okay. And I'm looking, I look up and I look down in this basement and I see what appears to be my mom, a woman about the same build in a floral pattern Victorian dress, putting stuff onto the shelf. And because she's putting these uh, pickled canning jars, uh, like mason jars, onto the shelf, I can't see her face. I just see, like, from her shoulders down. And I'm like, mm-hmm. Mom. And from the summer kitchen, to my right, I hear my mother say, What, honey? And I look over, and my mom's in the summer kitchen. I look back. Not Ooh. only is the woman gone, all of the canning goods are gone. And we're talking about three seconds. There's no way anybody could oh. get out of that basement with also taking all that stuff off the shelf and make no sound and make no sound and not break any of the glass in that amount of time and and i i went in there and i checked and there was nobody in there i've heard footsteps i've heard uh i i when i was like four or five i got pushed down the attic stairs um and my mom was on the other side of the room um in a less uh uh, public place in a place that is uh, more specific. Uh, there was a cemetery by my house where I grew up in when I was about nine. The other like, half of the property was cemetery and half of it was woods. It was like a single large lot, like maybe the whole thing would maybe be an acre or less, maybe half an acre. Um, and so we had walked across the cemetery, but we were always taught to like be really respectful, so you stay off of the graves. You don't walk where people are actually buried, um, or you walk mm-hmm. towards where their feet are. Um, and this was a tiny, tiny cemetery. I mean, you know. So we, we my brothers went into the woods first, and this one other neighborhood kid that was with us, and then I went in last. And as I'm walking in, I felt somebody push me, and I fell forward. And when I came up on my uh, like off of my hands and knees... I saw that my right wrist had a big, deep cut in it. And so I ran home and we went to the doctors and got stitches. I got like, uh, let me count, uh, four stitches in my right uh, wrist. I could see the tendon and I moved my thumb. It was neat. Um, Whoa. Yeah. And so my, my, after we were done getting me stitches, my dad and my, uh, and my brothers and I went back and we looked around and we couldn't find anything sharp enough i also say this is a very straight cut this isn't like um when you get cut by a thorn where it's like jagged and you know because this wasn't uh this was a straight cut um Mm -hmm. so the fact that uh, there was no broken glass there were no sharp stones nothing like that we found um but i want to say the next summer or the summer after a bunch of uh dads and guys in the neighborhood got together and they cleared out that forested area you know what they found mm-hmm. the what? rest of the graveyard oh yeah so um yeah so trees had just grown mm-hmm. over the graves yeah wow nobody took care of most of it so i don't know why one side of it wasn't overgrown but um mm-hmm. yeah apparently i pissed somebody off um i stepped on somebody's grave i don't think it 
I don't think it has to be. I mean, here's the thing. Um, in the like 18th, 19th century, people used to have like picnics and things at, at cemeteries. I think intent matters a lot. Uh, so you just kind of walking through it. I think intent matters. You don't need to do anything that, uh, okay. Obviously probably a lot of people listening don't believe in this kind of stuff. That's fine. If you do from what I've been told from people who are mediums, people are very much who they were in death as they were in life. That's true. And maybe you just met a kid hater. One of them people who just doesn't like children uh, and was like, ugh, get out of my face. I met more than one. <laughs> I met one on the farm. I met one in that graveyard and I met one in the house. Uh, we had two houses on our property when I was a kid and that mm-hmm. back house, there was something in there after my grandmother died, like parts of the walls were gutted, but nobody ever finished like taking, ripping stuff mm-hmm. out and redoing it. Um Mm-hmm. And that was when I had gone back there and I saw something. I can't really tell you what it was. I was like eight, but like it was mm-hmm. something. And I can, I still have a picture of it in my head, but it's really hard to explain because uh, it wasn't. No, humanoid. I totally understand so what it's you like, mean. And the whole house never had a good vibe ever again. Like, and I just wonder if maybe my grandmother was pissed because that's where she spent the end of her life was my grandfather. And then like, it just got sort of there was messed a, up. A, there was a show I was watching. And there was a lady who, um, like it was like an aunt or a great aunt or something had taken her own life. And she said that after that happened, she had like a, a moment where she got really upset with her deceased relative. And she said after that was when things started happening. And it seemed like whatever was there was very upset with her. And so... I, I mean, I wonder if if the person, you know, it's not just, you know, your grandmother died there. Who knows what your parents might have said to her or about her. Maybe she had an attitude about it. Yeah. You never know. Yeah. Ghosts are weird. Um, I mean, and again, it, it, not everybody believes in this stuff, and that's totally fine and valid. Um I'm actually, in most senses, very much a scientist, um, but I do trust my gut. And when my gut says there's something spooky here, I'm like, listen up, y'all. You be chill. I'll be chill. We're good. But don't leave power and water on because they're expensive and I can't afford that. And don't hurt nobody. Other than that, wander around your heart's content. That's usually my, whenever I come into a new place and it feels spooky, I'm like, listen up, y'all. This is the rules. (laughs) Just chill. Just keep it yeah, chill. Yeah, everybody be chill, and we're good. So. But, um, I mean, I think that's the end for Yeah, today. that's weird New Jersey. Um, It's a strange place. Oh, this was a lot of fun. I, I liked hearing about the different stuff in New Jersey. Yeah, I mean, there's... Some of these are places that I kind of vaguely heard about. I think it's so interesting. Every state has, like, a... Uh, a dead man's curve type oh, yeah. thing and every straight has every state has like um we in pennsylvania we have like the bus and if you go down like this one particular hill and you like put your car in neutral your car will move backwards and i've heard that in multiple different states people have also told a similar story and there's like i think well, uh, those are called gravity hills yeah yeah there's loads of those gravity hills there's um, the, the staircases that people find randomly in the woods the all you over the country. 
Um, gravity hills are actually just a scientific, uh, have a scientific explanation that, like, it's... Yeah, I think they did it on, um... It's the way that a mountain is, like, when you're going up a mountain, the road can be... If for you, it looks flat, but for the mountain, it's actually tipped forward for you, so, like, you know, but you can't tell that driving down it, it's just enough. Or it's, like, tipped backwards. Yeah, so... Yeah. Um... There's all sorts of, but I've just, there's so many different things that it overlaps, and that's one of the things that I kind of love. And you just wonder, like, is this a globalization thing that we have similar stories like this? Or is this just a... I think we experience similar things because... Humans are looking for more. And, and I think that in a mm-hmm. society that understands so much, we want something that we don't understand to be mm-hmm. real. And not just be like, oh, it's because of, you know, particles or something, you know. And I can understand <laughs> that. Um we need a little mystery, you know. Listen, that's it's one of the better things about life. Exactly. Well, I want to say thank you, Glitch, for being my guest today. Of course, it was lovely. And if you liked Glitch and you like our general banter, you can hear us every week, every Friday on Roommate Arena. It's available on nearly every podcasting platform, or at least it's been released. Our third episode went live this past week, and... Yeah. Yeah. It's very fun. It's right now it is Glitch, my other roommate Tony and I talking about all sorts of silly things, more on the side of comedy. But just also because we need a little comedy in our life and I can't do two podcasts that are very dark. (laughs) I mean I I, I need a little fun. I just wouldn't want to write as much as I have to write for this one. (laughs) Oh yeah. I signed myself up to do a ten plus page research paper every single week but i don't know it's a labor of love i still like doing it i'd rather argue whether mayonnaise goes on hoagies or not (laughs) that's an upcoming episode but thank you so much for listening if you're still here we love you so much all right thanks guys Bye. bye